All right. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. I hope you had a great week. Many of you were gone. Uh, many of you families were with your uh, sons or daughters who were away uh, from school for spring break. And so like you, uh, Beth and I had the opportunity to spend four days with our daughter in Washington, D.C. We got to see tons of stuff there. If you've never been to see the Smithsonian and some of the monuments that are there, it's absolutely incredible. And I was just reminded again of how thankful I am for those who paid a price so that we could have the freedom that we enjoy and that we have as a country and that you and I have really to worship together in a free place this morning. Don't ever, don't ever take the cost of that lightly. Somebody said when we were on the tour, freedom is free, but it really costs people much. And so the freedom you and I enjoy freely is a freedom that costs people their lives. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. One of the things that I got the opportunity to do that was very interesting to me, we went to one, the Smithsonian has a ton of museums. And one of the museums is the Museum of Natural History. So I thought we'll go into that. Beth Ashton kind of wanted to lead the tour. So she took us to that museum and I walked into the ocean part of that museum and I saw hanging above me the skeleton of a massive whale. What do you think I started thinking? We're preaching through Jonah. We're in chapter 3. Jonah just spent chapter 2 in one of those or in a great fish. And so my whole mind was, I wonder if a person could really fit in that skeleton. So I started backing up from it. I started taking all these pictures. People were like watching me. What is wrong with this guy? I'm like, Jonah. And so I look up there and, and actually in my mind's eye, it would be a really uncomfortable ride. It would be, uh, there would be nothing attractive about it. There's, there's no first class accommodations. There's not even coach. You don't even get peanuts in this ride. But I actually think you could, you could probably spend a little bit of time, in, at least in that whale. And so I don't know if it was a whale or a great fish, uh, but, but certainly we know that God can do anything. And so it shouldn't take us by surprise. Or it shouldn't cause us any doubt in our mind when we read about somebody spending three days inside the belly of a great fish. I hope that's not a stumbling block to you, but if, if you believe in the kind of God that can do a miracle, then that's certainly what we've been reading about in Jonah chapter 2. Well, right after I finished that display, I walked out, and we were walking around, and, and there was a sign that said, Gems and Minerals. So I thought, hmm, I think I'll go in there. So uh, I went in there, and I walked right past a little room, and on the outside of that room was a little sign that said, The Hope Diamond. How many of you have ever seen The Hope Diamond? How many, let's start it this way. How many of you have heard about The Hope, Hope Diamond? All right, you know about it, all right? Well, if you don't know about the Hope Diamond, I'm going to educate you today. It's the largest diamond uh, in continental United States. It is 45 and a half carats big. Think about the size of that diamond on somebody's ring finger. You know, people get, you know, you get engaged and they get a diamond and sometimes the diamond's a half carat or sometimes it's a carat. Man, if you really want to... Splurge, you got somebody gets a two-carat diamond, that's massive. You gotta wear sunglasses around that 
person for a little bit, but this was a 45 and a half carat diamond. It's worth over $350 million if you were to try to sell this thing. Actually, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind diamond, so it's probably worth a lot more than that. And it was very interesting to see people approach that. There were people who just zipped by it and kind of glanced at it and kept rolling. There were other people that kind of got up there, looked, and then just kind of took off. And then there were people who stood there and just just stood there, and they just watched. It kind of revolves around in a case, so you can see all the different cuts and all the different facets of the diamond. It's a deep blue sort of gray color, and the light just refracts off that in a beautiful way, and people had their cameras out. People were videoing it because they wanted to preserve what they saw. And then some people actually went off to the side and Googled everything they could Google about the Hope Diamond. I'm not going to tell you who did that, but I know somebody that did that. And, and as this person did that, he discovered an interesting fact. The Hope Diamond arrived at the Smithsonian in the mail. Somebody put this diamond in a box, wrapped it up in brown paper, wrote the Smithsonian address on it, and sent it in as a donation. I kind of would have loved to have opened that mail that day. But can you imagine? It, it was mail from New York City to Washington, D.C. The postage on that package was $2.44. They insured it. This, this happened on November 8th, 1958. And they insured the Hope Diamond. They paid $144 to insure the Hope Diamond for a million dollars. Now, here's this Hope Diamond, priceless gem, and it's rolling around in a mail truck in a brown paper wrapped box, and, and it's handled by how many different people, and it finally arrives at the mail room, or maybe it's special delivery, and it's brought up to uh, the person at the Smithsonian to whom it was addressed. Think of all the people who touched that box. Think of all the people who handled that box who never knew what they had in their hand. And I'm convinced sometimes when we read a book like Jonah, that's a lot like what happens to us. When you read the book of Jonah, we, we have been talking about the fact that this book is in our Bible to remind us of the radical grace and the scandalous mercy that God loves to show to desperate sinners. Radical grace, scandalous mercy, Desperate sinners. And we've been handling this book now for several weeks. And if you're like me, it's like, well, how much more can we get out of Jonah? It's like four chapters, 48 verses. But Jonah would say to you, you haven't even begun to unwrap what I put in that book for you to read. Now, you'll remember as we started talking about the book, one of the things we noted was the perspective from which the book is written. The book, I believe, was written by Jonah. And I believe that he wrote the book long after the events that he's describing in the book took place. So when he started to look back on these events and decided to use them to tell Israel a story, and God inspired him to do that, Jonah included things in the story, and Jonah stated things in the story a certain way to make sure that you would catch lessons that he needed to learn along the way. And we've already picked that up. 
a number of times. We, we, we said it this way. We said the book of Jonah is artfully designed. It's beautifully constructed. It is a beautiful literary piece. It is carefully constructed. Every book in, every part of the book balances. You're going to see Jonah in chapter 1, and you're going to see almost the exact same thing in chapter 3, and the differences in the two accounts are incredibly important. They're carefully constructed, and they are hard, they are packed with hard-hitting theological truth. Jonah is one of those books that delivers truth in a way that you don't realize it's hit you until a day or so later and you're sore. And you kind of go, I wonder what happened to me. And all of a sudden you look down and there is a hard impact that Jonah made in your heart that began to ruminate in your soul over time. And so that is what we're looking at. We're looking at a book about God's radical grace and God's scandalous mercy And we are beginning to discover that the person who least thinks he needs it is the one who needs it most. The person who least thinks he needs mercy. Jonah knew that he needed deliverance. He was at the bottom of an ocean. He was running out of air, about to run out of life. He knew that he desperately needed deliverance, but he wasn't ready to say that he needed mercy. And you know, that's where a lot of us are, I think, sometimes. We need God's deliverance, and we may even recognize we need God to rescue us, but to come to the point where we're saying to God, I need mercy is a hard thing. Because when you need mercy, you need mercy because you've sinned. Mercy comes to desperate sinners. And that's what Jonah had to come to realize. And so, as Jonah writes the story, that's where he's headed. That's where he's going. Now, the last time we saw Jonah, he was crawling up on the shores of Joppa. Remember that fish came and deposited him there? He was crawling up on the shore of Joppa, having experienced God's mighty deliverance from the bottom of the ocean, from the belly of the fish. And as he dries himself off, and begins the journey to Jerusalem. Remember, he made some promises to God. He vowed some things to God from the fish. And so now that he's on shore, he makes his trek to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, and he pays his vows. He keeps his promise. We instinctively know three things about him. I mean, this is what Jonah would say. Now, don't miss this. I've spent two chapters telling you a story. I want to make sure as I trek over to Jerusalem to pay my vow, and to make my thanksgiving sacrifice, I want you to know three things. Here are the three things. Jonah has experienced the very mercy that God sovereignly desires to show to Nineveh. In other words, the same mercy that Jonah is being sent to Nineveh to to, to announce is the mercy that Jonah just experienced. He just tasted the mercy. And then secondly... He was no more deserving of that mercy after his willful resistance and his intentional disobedience and his resentful rebellion against God. He was no more worthy of that mercy than the Ninevites to whom God was sending him. In other words, he was guilty of the very same kind of hard heart that he was frustrated with God about when God wanted to show mercy to the same kind of hardened sinners. Just looking differently on the outside. So Jonah 
was no more deserving of the mercy he tasted than the Ninevites were worthy of the mercy God was sending him to deliver. And then the third thing Jonah would want you to know is this. He was outwardly compliant. He had come to the place where he had said, Uncle. He was outwardly compliant, but internally he remained fundamentally unchanged toward the mission. And so that's where we pick up the story in chapter 3. And so let's begin by noting that the grace of God, this radical grace and the scandalous mercy that Jonah experiences in chapter 2 continues in chapter 3 with a gracious recommissioning. There's a gracious recommissioning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. When we read that together this morning uh, in our our time of, of prayer, you remember me saying to you, take note of that word the second time. The word literally means again. And it shows up in this book as one of the most powerful, grace-filled words in the whole book. I mean, that word is, is a visible sort of verbal marker of the ocean of grace and this mountain of mercy that has been extended to this prophet. I mean, think about how Jonah got where he got. What landed him where he needed such mercy? When we met Jonah in chapter 1, he was a a Torah-keeping child of Israel. He was a son of the covenant. He was an official prophet. He had been greatly used by God. He had some connections, we believe, to Elijah and Elisha. He stood in their tradition. He had taken news of the mercy of God and the grace of God to King Jeroboam II. He had warned God's people of God's coming judgment. He had ministered faithfully for those people and to those people. Here was a Torah-keeping, righteous prophet. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 1, he is choosing to perish over repenting. You'll remember as we made our way through those two chapters when When Jonah told us, I fled from the presence of the Lord, what he meant to say, what he meant for us to understand by that was that he had renounced his prophetic ministry. He had removed himself from the people of the covenant and he had uh, absolutely abandoned the place where God's, the geographical place on the planet where God had chosen to place his presence. And then he goes down to a ship. And even when God pursues him on the ship, Jonah rebels. Jonah resists. And God graciously puts a storm in his path. And then God graciously brings him and he stands him in front of a whole bunch of pagan sailors. And they break out the lots. And sure enough, by God's gracious, sovereign mercy, the lots point to Jonah. And the truth comes out. And Jonah gives this magnificent confession and on the basis of that confession, at the end of chapter 2, all of those pagan soldiers, all of those pagan sailors become genuine Yahweh followers. So everybody in chapter 2 repents except one person, this prodigal prophet. He stands on the deck and those sailors say to him, what do we have to do? And he says, well, there's only one thing you can do. I could repent, which I'm not going to do, so that only leaves one shot. And that is, you've got to throw me over. I've either got to repent or I've got to perish. 
And if I've got to make a choice based on what I know God is up to, I'm going to perish. And so over the side he goes, and you know the story. He lands and he cries out to God as he's drowning, and God sends this great sea creature. And Jonah comes now to the temple, and he pays his vows that he made in the belly of that great beast. And God says to him, now, Jonah, I want to recommission you. There's an ocean of grace in that. God's grace rescued Jonah from the consequences of his sin. But it also renewed Jonah to the fellowship that had been broken. He is restored to the ministry that he had forfeited. I mean, when you think about this little word again, there is this incredible sense that Jonah wants to make sure you know that, that God is a God of second chances. And some of you in this room have thought to yourself from time to time, I know that God will forgive me, but I think I may have completely ruined the rest of my life. I know that the forgiveness of God is available. I know that God's grace is for sinners, and I happen to be in desperate need of that grace I happen to desperately need that mercy and I'll just be content if I get mercy because I know that whatever else I get, the rest of my life I'm going to have to live and I'm going to have to live that life that I get, whatever it is that God gives me, I'm going to have to live that as second best because I blew my opportunity. If anybody would stand before you and say, now wait a minute, God doesn't operate that way. That's not the kind of grace and that's not the kind of mercy that God gives when He gives you grace and mercy. It would be Jonah. Jonah would be standing in front of you today. In fact, he is in the book. And he's saying, look at that word again. That word tells you something about God. God came to me a second time and He restored everything that I ruined by my rebellious prodigal run. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know to what depths you have sunk. Maybe you haven't gone all the way to the bottom of an ocean. I, I don't know where your end is. Jonah came to the very end of life. But wherever it is, wherever that place is, you may think, you know, I, I, I just need God to rescue me, and, and, but I don't think I can ever get back. God is a God of second chances. And it's not just Jonah that would stand there and tell you that. In the New Testament, Jesus makes a very interesting and intentional comparison between Jonah and Peter. I want you to think about this. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, now Peter's dad was John. And a lot of people think maybe there was a textual issue that maybe somebody left a letter off and, and Jesus actually said, Simon, son of John. But actually, I, I think Jesus was making a comparison between Peter and Jonah. Both men, for example, heard the very clear word of God and resisted it greatly. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach. And Jonah said, I'm not going. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, and, he's, and he did this three times, Peter, I have to go to Jerusalem to die. And Peter said, you're not going to Jerusalem to die. And it got so bad that Peter 
was saying this to Jesus, and Jesus rebuked him strongly and severely, and he said to him, get thee behind me. You remember the next word? Satan. You're thinking like the world thinks. Peter, I have to go. Peter and Jonah both struggled deeply with something that God commanded. They struggled deeply with taking grace to Gentiles. If you stop, that, that was Jonah's big problem. I, I don't want this mercy to go to the greatest enemies of Israel. And Peter was taking that mercy to people that he absolutely struggled to take the mercy to. And you remember how God had to deal with Peter. God dealt with Jonah at the bottom of an ocean in the belly of a, a, a great fish. God dealt with Peter on a rooftop in a vision in the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius in the city of, of all places, Joppa. I don't think this is accidental. And you remember the great broken moment in Peter's life where he denied the Lord three times and the Lord reached out to Peter in John chapter 20, and he restored him. Don't ever read the word again in Jonah 3 the same way. Because the God who gave Jonah a second chance is willing to give you, and he's willing to give me a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and a fiftieth chance. One of the great lessons of the book is that there is always a way back to God. Always. It doesn't matter where you got off the path. It doesn't matter how far you wandered. It doesn't matter how dark it is. It doesn't matter how deep it is. It doesn't matter how broken it is. There is always a way back to God. You may be sitting here this morning, and and that may be a theological truth that registers to you that you rejoice in. But you don't need that right now because you're in fellowship with God. You're walking obediently. You're praising God. Your heart is filled with what you've been worshiping this morning. But there may come a day, and it could happen to all of us. Paul said, take heed when you think you stand. Take heed lest you what? Lest you fall. There's not going to be a life in this room that at some point does not need what Jonah is saying. God is a God of second chances. Now, how does God bring all of this about? How does God bring this amazing grace and this radical uh, mercy to bear? And the answer is in verse 2 when we discover the next thing that Jonah says you need to make sure you catch, and that is a word-centered proclamation. So God comes again to Jonah and speaks almost exactly what he said in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The word Lord there is the word Yahweh. So it's Jonah's God, the covenant God of Israel, who is now speaking. Jonah says, I want you to understand that the God of Israel wants me to go to the enemies of Israel, and he wants me to do something. And so here's what God said. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So what's missing in chapter 3 that you found in chapter 1 was the reason that Nineveh's attention had come to God. 
In chapter 1, we found out it was a great city filled with great evil, filled with great wickedness. And so Jonah in chapter 1 is told, go and cry out against the city. But in chapter 2, or chapter 3 rather, we find sort of a different emphasis. It's not that what was going on in chapter 1 has changed. It's that that when God calls a person, there's multi-sides. It's like that hope diamond. There's multi-sides to what's going on. So one of the sides in chapter 1 is there's a great city that is wicked. In chapter 3, there is a great city, and we're going to find out later, it's immensely important to God. And Jonah is to go, and he is to preach to that city. The word call is the word for herald. You are to go as my herald, and when you get there, you are to announce, you are to herald, you are to proclaim a proclamation that I give you. So let's talk about this word-centered proclamation for just a moment. This, this word-centered proclamation is the secret to all the mercy that happens in the book. It's not Jonah. It's not Nineveh. The, the secret to the mercy is in God using His Word to bring about a desired result. And so let me just make some observations and then we'll move off this point. There is a Spirit-directed ministry that we find in this text. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh was a great city. Now you'll notice it's 550 miles from Jerusalem. It's a three-month journey by foot. So after Jonah gets deposited back at Joppa, he goes to Jerusalem, and then he heads north to uh, Nineveh, and three months later, he arrives at this great city. We're going to find out later, it's at least 120,000 people living in this city, and, and they have no knowledge of the Torah of God. They, they have no knowledge of the law of God. They are ignorant in uh, who they are. There is this incredibly great city. Now, I got some slides to kind of give you just a little bit of a taste. This, this is the modern gates of Nineveh uh, that existed until ISIS destroyed them. But you can kind of get a little bit of a taste of how large. That gate was one of the main gates through which probably Jonah entered the city. It was an immense city. Let me show you the next slide. Uh, that, that's an ancient sort of artistic rendition of the walls of the city. And if you want to see what the whole city looked like, let me, uh, let me give you sort of an artistic rendition of what people have kind of thought the city looked like. It was a city that had significant influence. It was, at that time, the capital city of the entire nation of Assyria. Now, I have a little video that I want to show you. Uh, the mu- I'll just warn you, the music's irritating. So if you don't like the music, just plug your ears. But this, this is actually a 3D model that somebody put together based on archaeology and based on things that they've done, research on the ancient city of Nineveh to kind of give you an, a, just an impact uh, of, of what we're talking about that God was interested in. Because this city was not just influential, it was a city that was very interesting to God. So I'm going to get out of the way so that you can see the screen and, and we'll take just a minute and watch this video.
That's the Tigris River, by the way. All right, so you have a little bit of a sense of the immense size of this city and of its significance. And, and this city was a city filled with wickedness. It was a center of idolatry. It was a center of immorality. It was a center of injustice. Um, there, there's a picture of the main temple there at Nineveh. And, and then I want you to notice in verse 3, it was a city that was important to God. Nineveh was an exceeding great city. It was great to God. In other words, this city mattered to God. And so as we kind of enter the city, here's Jonah standing on a hill looking down and, and observing the city. And he has an authorized message. He's been authorized to give a message to this city. There is an official thing that God wants to say to them. It's confrontational. No, Jonah, or Jonah's going to come in and say, 40 days, and God is going to do something. And it's really clear what God is going to do. God is going to turn Nineveh upside down. He is going to overthrow Nineveh in 40 days. This is the same term Moses uses in Genesis to describe what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like Jonah says, I want you to, when you hear this word, overthrow, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember another city that God overthrew. You know about this if you have the Torah. If you have the Torah and you know the Torah in the book of Genesis, there was a city like Nineveh who was filled with wickedness and their wickedness had come up before the Lord and by the time it was all said and done, God had overthrown the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by His judgment. But there was compassion in this message too because God was giving Nineveh a chance. Forty days before this judgment comes. And the word overthrown is actually a gracious word because it's one of those words that's ambiguous. You don't quite know what's going to happen. When, when Jonah walks into this city and says, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown, you don't know if Nineveh is going to be turned upside down by God or if Nineveh is going to turn around. That's the ambiguity in the term. And so there is this very gracious preaching and it is delivered by an energized, spirit-energized spirit minister. Jonah wants us to know that everything happened according to the word of the Lord. And it wasn't just that he went to Nineveh in obedience to the word of God. Everything that he said and everything that happens from this point on in the chapter happens because God's word energized it. God's Spirit attended to God's Word. And that brings us to the third thing that Jonah wants us to make sure we catch, and that is this. There is a reluctant 
compliance. There is a reluctant compliance. Jonah says, now look, as, as I go into Nineveh, I'm writing this story many, many months or maybe even many years after it happened, and I'm telling you how I went into, uh, went into Nineveh, and I want you to pick up something. I was, I was compliant, but I was reluctant. And the first hint of that is that Jonah was silent when God came to him a second time. The first time Jonah was silent and he ran, the second time Jonah complied, but he was silent, which is very unusual when God gives an, uh, an order to a prophet. Oftentimes, the prophet will respond back to God. The prophet will say something back to God, articulating how he thinks about or what he's feeling about what God has asked him to do. That is missing in chapter 3. And Jonah says, now, it's not that I wasn't thinking things. I was. I'm just not going to tell you about them in chapter 2. I'm going to wait till chapter 4 to tell you what I was thinking. What I want you to see is my silence. My silence ought to communicate something to you. I am going, but I am going reluctantly. I have been rescued by God, but I have not yet submitted to God. I've complied, and I'm going, and I'm going to say exactly what God told me to say. Here's the second thing that you notice about this compliance. It was partial. God said, I want you to go into the city, and you can see the massive side of that size of that city. It would take you three days just to kind of make your way to all the different parts of that city to declare the message. Jonah goes one day, and he starts talking. And then he stops. And when he starts talking, he has one message. Forty days, and God's going to destroy this city. I mean, it's real evident, Jonah says, I want you to pick up if you haven't. It's real evident what I was hoping God would do. I did not want God to show mercy to this city. And the fact that God had told me that the city's wickedness had come up before him, the fact that he sent me to announce this meant that God was either going to have to judge them or he was going to have to give them mercy and I wanted to do everything in my power to sort of weight the equation in my favor. I don't want this city to get mercy. And you, you can kind of see how, how odd that is because Jonah just experienced the mercy. He just tasted the mercy that he desperately needed in chapter 2 and he still is determined that these people aren't going to get it. And he's got theological reasons for it. He is determined that the people of Israel are not going to be destroyed by this nation. And he knows because he's a prophet and God has been warning Israel about these very Assyrians and what God is going to do with them to Israel. And, and now here's an opportunity for Jonah to actually stand up and make Israel great again. And he's not about to give any ground that would potentially bring mercy to these people. God has sort of boxed him in. God has brought him to a place where he's had to comply. And Jonah says, I go reluctantly. I speak obediently but partially. And, and I really don't want to engage. Now, contrast 
what Moses did. Moses also was a prophet. Moses also had very difficult news for Israel. Moses spent 40 days on top of a mountain after coming down and delivering the Ten Commandments to Israel and finding the golden calf incident and and just being horrified by what he saw. And then he shatters the commandments and he goes back up to the top of the mountain and he spends four days interceding with God for the people that God was about to put wrath on. And here's another prophet who should have been doing the same thing to a group of people who were actually guilty of a very similar kind of idolatry. You have Israel in Exodus 32, and you have Nineveh in Jonah 3, and they're both about to experience the incredible wrath of God for the very same sin. And one prophet is on top of a mountain praying for God to spare these people, and another prophet is doing everything he can to make sure the judgment falls. You see the contrast between these two parts? And Jonah's fame, Jonah's claim to fame is this, I am a Torah-keeping prophet. I stand in the line of Moses. And Jonah would say, I may have stood in his line, but I didn't have his heart. You know, I think sometimes you and I are oftentimes in ministries very much like what we see in Jonah, right? We, we know and are eager to, pre- to, to preach about the forgiveness of God. We're eager to talk about the mercy of God as long as it goes to people that we think should get it. But what happens when somebody comes across your path and they do something to you and it's not minor? It's not like they jostled your arm in the metro or just kind of cut you off in the highway and you spilled your coffee all over and now you've got this horribly inconvenient day. I'm talking they did something horrific. And if we sat together around a table and we actually talked about this, here's, I think, what would come up in our hearts. I know this would come up in mine. Well, that person can be forgiven. They can be forgiven. Anybody can be forgiven. But should they get mercy? And the answer that many of us would give is, well, no. They don't what? What's the next word? They shouldn't get mercy. They don't deserve it. And Jonah's whole point is this. Nobody who gets mercy deserves it. Nobody who gets mercy deserves it. Mercy is never given on the basis of merit. The minute you deserve it, it stops being mercy. God's mercy is always unmerited, and that's what makes it so scandalous. Until we actually put ourselves in a similar spot to Jonah, we're going to be doing the same thing to Jonah that Jonah was doing to Nineveh. We're going to look at Jonah and go, what a hard heart you have. What a theological moron you are. I know you shouldn't say that word, but think of a different word. Whatever word you like. Uh, Idiot or, uh, you know, I don't know. I got myself in trouble there. Just think of a nice, acceptable, politically churchy word for moron, and that's how you think about Jonah. What are you doing denying mercy to these people? Are you God? Jonah's like, well, what are you doing judging me? You're judging me for judging them. 
And immediately you start to see, John says, let's, let's put you at the table and let's put your Nineveh across. Because everybody has a Nineveh. You put your Nineveh across the table and then let's talk about how free you are with God's mercy and how joyful you are and how embracing you are of this mercy that you're ripped at me for not wanting my Nineveh to get. What about your Nineveh? And I don't know who your Nineveh is, but you know who it is. I don't know what great evil your Nineveh has done, but your Nineveh wouldn't be Nineveh if it hadn't done a great evil. You don't put a Nineveh across the table for being nice. You don't put a Nineveh across the table because they believe differently from you. You put a Nineveh across your table because they've done something evil. They've done something wicked. They've done something that has cost you greatly. And when Jonah looked at the Nineveh God put in front of him, the last thing he wanted for them was mercy. And the truth is, when we look at our own Nineveh, the last thing we want for them is mercy. And here's the point Jonah's making. You and I are a lot alike. And that's why I'm telling you the story. So here's my question. How in the world, with a preacher like Jonah, with a heart like like Jonah's heart was at the moment, and, and with this partial message that he delivers partway into the city. How in the world did this great revival break out? And there's only one answer, and it's God. God did this. And that's the final thing, really, that we see. There is a spirit-enabled repentance. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. That word, that phrase, believe God, is the same phrase that is used to describe what happened to Abraham. Abraham believed God. And here are another group of idolaters who also believed God. By the way, when Abraham believed God, he was in a city not too far from this one. He was in the city of Ur. In the book of Acts, as as, uh, Luke recounts the history of Israel, he points out that it all began when your fathers were on the other side of the river. And he's talking there about the Euphrates River. When they were idolaters, Abraham was a Gentile, pagan idolater, and he heard God, and he believed God. And throughout the Scriptures, that belief is described this way. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as what? Righteousness. Here in the book of Jonah are more Abrahams. You saw the temples they worshipped at. You saw the goddesses and gods they bowed down before. Their hands were filled with violence. They were guilty of the grossest forms of idolatry and immorality and social injustice. I mean, this nation was a nation that was known worldwide for its, its, its ferocity and, and for its violence. In fact, the king is actually going to talk about this when he issues a declaration and a pronouncement of repentance. And this man comes and opens his mouth and the whole city believes God. How did that happen? Well, the Spirit of God enlightened their understanding. The first thing that happens 
when a person believes is the Spirit of God has to open their eyes. And then the Spirit of God energized their belief. He enlivened their heart. This is exactly what we read about in Ephesians 2 that happened to you, that happened to me. God had to enliven us. God had to open our eyes so that we could be enlightened to see the truth and that God had to enable us to believe. He had to grant us repentance and he had to grant us faith. And that's exactly what we read here in the book of Jonah. So what happens when this prodigal prophet shows up and he opens his mouth? God happened. And by the way, that's what happens when the Spirit of God is at work through His Word. You know, sometimes I think we actually believe that the, 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 the greater the preacher, the, the greater his personality, the greater his reputation, the better the message is going to reach people. The message does not reach your heart because of me or because of any other preacher. We are just like Jonah. We are the broken, humbled, sometimes stubborn, sinful mouthpiece that needs mercy as much as you. We sometimes are more in need of the very thing we're preaching than the people we preach it to. It's not unusual for those of us who preach to sit in our studies and for the Spirit of God to have to do an immense work in our lives as we process through all of this and the very same things that go on in your heart as you hear the message on Sunday morning have been going on in our heart. The very same resistances, the very same heartbreak, the very same fear, the very same worry, the very same joy that sometimes comes. All of that that goes on in your heart when you hear the preaching has been going on in the heart of a person who's been preparing that message because God has been preaching that message to him. And I can just tell you, sometimes you sit and you look at the text and you say one of two things, God, there's no possible way I can say this to those people. Are you kidding me? How in the world am I going to get up and say that? And God says, well, it's the preaching that I'm going to give you and you're not responsible for what happens you are responsible to say what I said. One of the greatest fears that any of us who preach have is standing before God one day and saying, and, and hearing God say this to us, why did you tell them I said that? I never said that. And I gave you instructions to study to show yourself approved so that you would know how to rightly open the Word of God. I, I, I'm, I'm just here to tell you what God has said. And that's one of the reasons why you sit under preaching in this church where you don't hear a whole lot of application. You are going to hear application where it's appropriate. And we've already had some in this message. But I'm not trying to get you to do what I want you to do. I'm trying to tell you what God has said so the Word of God can sit on your soul like it sits on my soul and the Spirit of God can make its application. It is the Word that does the work. And it is the Spirit that energizes, that works. So let me ask you a question. When you sit and you listen to preaching and you say to your heart, why is it that I get nothing out of that sermon? Because that happens to all of us, right? I mean, that's not just you. It happens to me. 
will go somewhere and somebody will open up the Word of God and it's a faithful servant of God and he's preaching the Word of God and maybe there's something we don't like about that delivery or maybe there's something we wish that guy did better, but we walk away and, and nothing has happened in our heart. Could I suggest something to you that I had to first suggest to myself? Maybe the problem is not with the preacher. Maybe the problem is that I haven't asked God to open my eyes. God, would you speak truth to me in that message would you take your word whatever part of that word i need to hear today would you make sure that my eyes grasp it my heart is enlivened to it and my will submits to it have you ever prayed for yourself as you come to hear a sermon god would you help my eyes to grasp what you put there. Would you help my heart to receive it? And would you help my will to submit to it? Would you speak through your word? By the end of Jonah, we're going to have seen that God will do this for Jonah. But I think sometimes we need to ask God to do it for us today. So let me end with this. What is God doing in your heart through this series? We're in chapter 3. We've just seen a whole city start to repent. We're going to break down what repentance looks like in the last half of the chapter. But here's what happened. A word was delivered, even by an imperfect preacher. A word was delivered, and people believed God. So here's my question to you. What is it that God has said to you that you're struggling to believe? For some of you, you can't forgive yourself for something that you did. And you play the woulda, coulda, shoulda game every day. And God constantly speaks to you through what you read in the Word, through what you hear on your way to work in a hymn that's played or a a Christian song that comes over your radio or a message that you hear on Sunday. And God says to you, you are forgiven. Are you struggling to believe that? Maybe you're on the other end of that and God is saying to you, you need to repent. And you're like Jonah saying, no, no, I don't need to repent. I'm theologically justified in this position. I have the moral high ground here. This is exactly what needs to happen. And I'm going to stand here, come hell or high water, and that's where I'm going to go. And God says, you need to repent. Are you struggling on that side of the equation to believe that? Maybe God is asking you to take the gospel to somebody you're like, oh, that person will never hear. That person will never believe. Are you struggling to believe what God has said to you? Are you struggling to believe what God is doing in you? Here's a group of people who had no reason to believe and the entire city believed. What would happen if we just did that as a church? What would happen if as a church, together, we covenanted before the Lord, every man, every woman, every child, we all said to, we all said to God, God, no matter what you say, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it personally. I'm going to believe it as your family. I'm going to believe it as a church. We are going to believe what you say. One of our core values here is the authority, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of Scripture. Do we really believe? what God has said. And when we do, 
It's amazing what God will do in us, for us, and through us. So my question again, what is it that God has said to you that you need to believe? Would you bow your heads and let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your goodness and for your grace. It shines in the darkest places. It, it pierces to the very depths of where we have found ourselves. Lord, I, I don't know where everybody is this morning. I know where I am. I don't know what Nineveh sits across the table from anybody else. I don't, I don't know at what point others in this congregation have stood on the deck of the ship of their life and said, I, I will not repent. I would rather perish. I know I've been on that deck. And I'm sure there are others who have been on that deck. Some of us have found ourselves in an angry ocean, running out of air, about to run out of life. And there may be some even this morning that are on that deck now, struggling to believe. God, how could you say that? How could you do that? Why would you allow this? And so, Father, we need you to do the work in our hearts that eventually you did in Jonah. We're so thankful for this prophet who, who after all that he went through, was so faithful and transparent to write it all down. And we are benefiting from what he is saying about his own life, the painful, ugly parts of it, because those are the same painful and ugly parts that we see in ours. So, Lord, help us to believe. Not just to believe in you, but to actually believe you when you speak. May your word be rich to us. Lord, help us never to content ourselves with stories and little short, pithy messages that just scratch the surface. Lord, help us to dig deep into this word and find the life and the strength that you put there as we're seeing in the book of Jonah. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work in our lives so that you can work through our lives for your glory and for your grace. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name.